Welcome, everyone, to a new podcast from Cross-Border Solutions we call Income Tax Provision. You might be thinking, what is an income tax provision? Well, that's a good question, and one we're going to answer for you today. With us, we have Howard Telson, Senior Manager of Tax Provision Product at Cross-Border Solutions. Welcome, Howard. And uh, thanks for having me. So, Howard, just a little background on you. How did you get into provision? I'm a CPA by trade, and prior to cross-border, I worked at KPMG for a little over six years. And what I would do at KPMG was was a mix of things, kind of all corporate tax-related. So I would do corporate tax returns for kind of big Fortune 500 companies. I would do consulting on if they were doing transactions. I would look at international tax matters, state tax matters. And then I would also focus on tax provisions. So I would prepare tax provisions for companies and then also audit tax provisions for companies as well. Is there something that stuck out to you about provisions in terms of your career trajectory interests? Generally, when people kind of start in tax, generally they don't start in provisions. Generally, they're doing tax returns or, or they'll do some kind of other matters. And then usually as people kind of go along, then they'll eventually move into provisions. And the reason why is provisions are, are somewhat complex somewhat esoteric. And it's kind of the intersection of accounting rules and tax rules. So you kind of need a good basis and foundation in both tax and accounting before you kind of move into doing tax provisions. Very clear common area of that Venn diagram. Now, as we all know, shareholders, investors, and market analysts are all interested in the financial performance of publicly traded companies. Tell us what they want to know about exactly and why. When you think about you know, public companies, these are the companies that you know, people invest in in the stock market. And so you know, often people talk about quarterly earnings releases and, and other releases like that that companies make that are all public information. And kind of included in these is you have earnings per share, you have assets and liabilities that are released of a company on a quarterly and annual basis. And people want this information to make investing decisions. And then other folks want it to make other decisions like, is the company a good you know, acquisition target? Should they be lending money to this company if they're a bank? So all these kind of financial metrics are really important to the investing and financial community. And, and one small component of these metrics and of these financials is tax. And I think we'll get into that in a little bit. So basically, invested parties need to know a company's financial position at all times. How do they get this information? Yeah, so in the U.S., you get it through what's called a Form 10-K, is what's released on an annual basis. And that includes a, a bunch of schedules, but the key ones are an income statement, a balance sheet, and a statement of cash flows. Those are kind of the three main financial schedules. And then on the quarters, it's a little bit of an easier financial statement, a little bit more uh, suppressed than a, than a full year end, but it essentially includes these same things. It's just at a bit of a higher level, a bit less information than the annual report, but it's still used by shareholders on a quarterly basis to kind of see, you know, how is the company doing during the year? How did they perform versus their competitors and how did they perform uh, versus themselves in previous quarters and previous years? Well, tell us a little bit more because this this financial statements term gets thrown around a lot. What does a financial statement include exactly? Basically, as I mentioned, there, there's three key schedules in a financial statement. So there's an income statement, there's a balance sheet, and there's a cash flow statement. So income statement is probably the one that most people are familiar with because this is very simple. It includes you know a listing of revenues, all the money that a company made during a certain period, and a listing of expenses, all the money they essentially spent during a period. So revenue is essentially, you know, how does a company make money, right? So 
if you're Apple, how do you make money? You do it, you know, selling iPhones and selling other products. And then expenses are how a company spends money. Companies spend money on equipment. They spend the money on people. They spend the money on buildings, marketing, a whole number of things. So that's kind of the income statement. And that's kind of the most probably obvious of the of the financial statements and the one most people are familiar with. Let's break the three of those down a, a little bit more. What specific information is included in each of those statements? In the balance sheet, you have a listing of assets, liabilities, and shareholders equity. So, and, and the balance sheet basically, you know, it's written in its name. It needs the balance, right? So assets need to equal liabilities and shareholders equity. So in, in assets, you have items like cash or property and liabilities. You have things like accounts payable, things you owe to other vendors or customers. And then shareholders equity is essentially kind of what's in the name, basically. It's what equity is in the business, right? It's you could kind of fund a business through debt that'll show up on the liability side. Or you could fund a business through equity, and that'll show up on the equity side. So that's the balance sheet. And then the cash flow statement is very simple. It's just simply the cash inflows and outflows during a period. So anytime you brought cash in, it's appearing as a positive cash inflow on the cash flow statement. And anytime you send cash out, it's appearing as an outflow on the cash flow statement. And for all of these financial statements, they include quarterly and annual financial statements. That's right. So each of these is issued on a quarterly and annual basis. Public companies and most private companies will need to get audited as well. But as mentioned, the annual is generally a lot more strict and a lot more detailed than the quarterly. But the quarterly will include all of these financial statements and and many of similar elements as the annual. Okay, so we have all these financial statements with all kinds of information, but we're here to talk about income tax provisions And I'm starting to feel like we've buried the lead a little bit. How are these documents relevant in terms of income tax provisions? When I think about an income tax provision, I think about it really is a calculation of all the income tax components of a financial statement, right? So we talked a little bit about the three kind of main schedules in a financial statement, the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow statement. When you calculate a provision, it's kind of getting to all the places in these financial statements where income tax matters. And the three separate documents to make up one report that comes out quarterly and annually, and then another complicated calculation, it sounds like a lot of work to calculate a company's tax provision accurately. Why is it so important? If we go back to the, to kind of the three financial statements and and we could really hone in on the income statement and the balance sheet. So, so why does a tax provision matter? Right. And, The key kind of output of an income statement is net income, right? So what did a company earn for a period of time? What was their income? And in order to calculate net income, you need to know what their tax expense was for the period that you're looking at. So a tax provision directly impacts a company's earnings. And you can see that on the income statement. It's it's generally the line right before net income is tax provision. So when a company releases earnings, a, a core component of those earnings is income tax, which is what the tax provision calculates. That's kind of the main thing the tax provision calculates. So that's number one. And then when we think about the balance sheet, the, the way the income tax provision kind of sprouts up on the balance sheet is in a couple of different places. But two key places is one is it'll sprout up as an income tax payable or a receivable. So if you underpay taxes during the year and you think at the end of the year or the end of the quarter, you owe tax to the government, you owe tax to the IRS or the state or a foreign taxing authority, it'll show up as a payable, meaning you owe them money in the future. You underpaid your tax for the year. 
If it shows up as a receivable, that means you overpaid your tax during the year and you'll eventually be due a refund from the government. So that's kind of where it'll show up on the balance sheet as a receivable or payable. And then it'll show up in, in one more place on the balance sheet as a deferred tax asset or a liability. And, and this is kind of the most confusing aspect of a tax provision, but essentially just the highest level, a deferred tax asset or liability is saying essentially the tax rules and the book rules differed in certain areas. And the deferred tax asset or liability is essentially tracking those differences and saying how those differences will impact you in the future. Will it be an asset that'll lower your tax liability in the future or a liability that will raise your tax liability in the future? And what does managing the amount of income tax tell investors, shareholders about how you're managing the company? Essentially, you know, there's an inverse relationship between your tax provision and the company's income, right? So the higher the tax provision, the lower the company's earnings. And the lower the tax provision, the higher the company's earnings. So generally, obviously, investors want higher earnings, right? And, and sort of management and pretty much everyone does, right? So the way you get to higher earnings, at least one way, is you lower the taxes, right? And, that, and that's become kind of a controversial topic of recent times is companies kind of driving their tax rate down to try to increase earnings. And we'll get into you know, how exactly you do that and what an effective tax rate is. But this is kind of one of the key concepts around tax provision is this key relationship between the tax provision and your income and how a tax provision is directly related to a company's income and how changes to it will immediately change a company's income. And that's why it kind of receives a lot of attention here. So it sounds like tax provision reveals a lot of information about a company. Is that why it receives so much scrutiny? As I mentioned, kind of the, the key impact that the tax provision has both on your assets and liabilities, but even more importantly, on your income directly, it receives a lot of attention, right? So it receives attention both internally, both from you know, C-suite, CFO, it will receive attention from shareholders, prospective investors, market analysts, creditors, anyone who's really interested in the company's financial position. And then also kind of this other group is on the regulatory side, right? So as I mentioned, a provision for a public company and most private companies is audited by your financial statement auditors. So we're talking, you know, generally accounting firms, but these financial statement auditors are really interested in the impact of your provision and they really dig into it and make sure that it's quote unquote materially correct. So just like they'll look at your, your other aspects of your financial statements, the income tax provision is really a key component that regulators like financial statement auditors look at. And potentially, if you're kind of flagged down by these auditors, other regulatory bodies could be looking at it as well. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross-Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. 
So who actually calculates the income tax provision and what do you need to do it? Generally, a tax provision is computed by a company's tax department. So, you know, depending on the size of the company's tax department, usually companies will have a tax manager or a tax director or a VP of tax. So generally, it's these folks that kind of handle computing a tax provision. And it's really a collaborative effort because these people need to coordinate with other business groups within the company to get the information they need. So they need to pull in data from the accounting group. They need to pull in data from the finance group. And they need to kind of look at all this information, all this accounting data, and then they need to apply tax rules to it, right? So it's really a collaborative effort between all these different groups in the company and kind of pulling in different information to kind of get to your final answer. Generally, the kind of the most important thing that you need to start your provision is what's called a trial balance, which comes from the accounting department and essentially just a list of all your company's accounts. So all the company's revenue, all the company's expenses, assets, liabilities at the most granular level. So you need to get that schedule and other supporting schedules from the accounting or finance group. And you need to kind of analyze that schedule, understand what's in it, and then understand what the differences are between the accounting and the tax rules, and then kind of apply that logic. And that's kind of the building blocks for, for how you start a provision and how you kind of coordinate to get the information you need to do a provision. And is that information readily available? So generally, no, right? So if we, if we think about kind of the timeline for how a provision works and why it becomes really difficult in a lot of cases. So, so let's just take a calendar year company, right? So a company that has a year end of 1231. So generally the way it works is companies will have the end of their year, 1231, and then a week or two later, they'll quote unquote, close their books. So, so what does that mean? That means that they're reflecting the activity of the company for a period of time up until 1231 in their accounting system. And you can't start reflecting that activity until after the period closes, essentially. So if your period's ending 1231, the accounting group can't start booking what are called journal entries, which is just recording the activity. They can't start really recording all of the activity until after 1231 ends. So after 1231 ends, they'll start recording the activity. You know, what happened in the last month of the year or the last few weeks of the year? What exactly did the business do? What kind of revenue did they earn? What kind of expenses did they outlay? And they'll start recording these items. And then what happens is after all these items are recorded and the accounting records are kind of locked down and income before income taxes is finalized, then the accounting folks will hand this information to the tax folks and the tax people could actually start now working on the provision. And the reason why this is so difficult is because tax is the last step in the process. Because as we, we alluded to a little bit before, you kind of need all this other information from accounting and finance to start your tax provision. So therefore tax is kind of last in the accounting process and last in, in terms of recording the income tax components to your financial statements. So usually doing the tax provision is kind of a mad rush. And the accounting group will you know, take a couple weeks to close the books. And then the, the tax department may only have a couple days to do the tax provision. Sometimes it could go up to a week or two weeks, but sometimes it could even be as little as one or two days to do your tax provision. And let's talk about those days, that crunch. What's involved in terms of actually calculating the income tax provision? Right. As I mentioned, you know, starting point to the provision is essentially your accounting data, right? So that schedule called a trial balance. That's kind of really what you need to start your income tax provision. 
So, so once you get your trial balance and you start kind of feeding this data into your provision calculations, the question is, you know, what do you do with this data, right? So there's multiple steps to the process, but the first thing you would do with your trial balance is you would send the data in and then you would compute what's called a current provision, right? So this is a walk from your accounting data, your pre-tax, quote unquote, book income to your taxable income, right? So you're starting with your accounting data and then getting to your tax data. So you start with accounting rules, you apply the differences in logic between tax and accounting rules, and then you get to your, your tax expense. So that's kind of one component, the current provision. Another component, the deferred provision, is a roll forward schedule that you have to track year after year that rolls forward you know, from the ending balance last year to the beginning balance this year. And this schedule tracks the changes between book or accounting data and tax data over time. So this schedule is a little bit complicated and we'll get more into the nuts and bolts of it in a future episode. But you would take the current provision and the deferred provision, you would combine the impact or the result of those two things together and you get to your income tax expense there. And that income tax expense directly feeds into your income statement. You would take that and once that's complete, then you would start thinking about your balance sheet. So you would think about, okay, I got my income tax expense for the year. I got my deferred tax expense for the year. Now I need to think about my deferred tax assets or liabilities. I need to think about my income tax payable or receivable. And in order to get to the income tax payable or receivable, you have to look at your current income tax expense that you computed. Then you have to think about how much cash did I pay in during the year for estimated taxes? And how close is that to what I just came out to in my current provision, which is really just an estimate of your tax liability for the year. And then you kind of look at those two things together, compare them and say, okay, am I overpaid or am I underpaid? And then that would kind of be what the income tax payable or receivable is on your balance sheet. So those are kind of the key things. And then the last one, which is arguably the most important item of a provision, and this is what really receives a lot of attention from the folks that we were talking about earlier, like investors and shareholders and market analysts, is you compute your effective tax rate. So, so how do you do that? The effective tax rate most simply is your income tax expense divided by your accounting income or your pre-tax book income. Let's just think about the U.S. for a second. In the U.S., we have a statutory tax rate or a federal tax rate of 21% right now, right? So a company that earns income in the U.S. will be required, a corporation will be required to pay tax at a rate of 21%. And then states also assess different taxes at different rates as well. However, if you look at a company's tax provision or a company's financial statements or just articles in the news or whatever have you, you will always see that a company has a different effective tax rate than 21%. Like U.S.-based companies will have a different effective tax rate than 21%. So they won't be paying the federal statutory rate. They'll be paying it at a tax at a different rate. And the, and the question is, so, so why is that? So there's a bunch of different kind of drivers as to what moves your effective tax rate up or down. And some of the key ones are, I mentioned state taxes. So do you have a large state presence? And if you do have a large state presence, that could drive your state tax rate up, right? So if you have a large state presence in a high state tax jurisdiction, think like New York and New York City or California, that's going to drive your effective tax rate up. Do you have international operations? Because international countries have a different tax rate than the U.S. If so, that could drive your tax rate up or down. So if you have international operations in high tax jurisdictions, that'll drive your effective tax rate up. If you're in low tax jurisdictions, that'll drive your effective tax rate down. 
So these are just a couple of the ways that your ETR is kind of influenced and kind of moves up and down. But your effective tax rate is really what a lot of people look at to gauge, you know, how, how efficient is your tax department? How are you doing as a tax department? People want that measure to be as low as possible. Because as I mentioned, it's, it's income tax divided by pre-tax book income. So the lower your income tax is, the lower your effective tax rate is. And that's what people really want to see is they really want to drive that down because that directly drives profits up. So just to boil that down, is the effective tax rate representative of all taxes, state, federal, international? So that's a very good question. So it's representative of all taxes that are related to income tax. Okay, so it's not related to things like sales tax or that value added tax or other or property tax or, or other taxes. It's only income tax related. But having said that, it is income tax of the entire world. And what does the effective tax rate tell shareholders, C-suite members, and other interested parties? It really is a benchmarking exercise. So it's, you know, last quarter you had this effective tax rate. What's your effective tax rate this quarter? Last year, your effective tax rate was X. This year, it's Y. What does that mean? Why did it go up or down? What kind of changed in the company? What kind of drove that up or down? Now, obviously, companies want to be trending down as opposed to up. And then looking at it versus competitors, right? So if you're you know, a competitor in one space, you want to look at it versus other competitors in that same space. And you want to say, am I with my peers? Am I kind of in the same ballpark as my peers? Am I, am I higher or am I lower? If I'm higher, why is that? You know, can I drive my effective tax rate down to be in line with my peers? Maybe I'm too low. Maybe it's extremely low and the investing community is starting to worry. You know, what are they really doing to make it so low? And then you really have to look at that and say, why is it so low? You know? Generally, you want your effective tax rate to be low, but if it's way lower than the rest of the kind of your competitors and peers, you know, that could raise a red flag as to like, what is that? What is driving that? And you would need to explain that kind of as a, as a tax department, as a company. A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We spoke about volatility and stakeholders will want to know why and when there is volatility. So if you have a consistently higher effective tax rate or lower effective tax rate compared to competition or industry peers, how does it look to stakeholders? Does it reflect categorically poorly on management if the effective tax rate is divergent from what they perceive as the norm? I think the, the key thing here is that the effective tax rate is essentially proved out in your financial statement. So you, every company has to do a rate reconciliation where you start at the federal statutory rates in the U.S. It's 21%. And then you show what items kind of impact your effective tax rate to bring you to where you are, right? So if you're way offline from your competitors or peers or you have anomalies in your effective tax rate year over year, 
is kind of going to fall out in this rate reconciliation schedule. But what you need to be able to do as a company or as a tax department is to easily explain why this is happening. You know, why are you low versus your peers? Or why are you high versus your peers? Why are you consistently this way? Or why are you not consistent? Why is it volatile? And that'll, that'll all kind of fall out in the rate reconciliation. But as a tax department or a company, you need to be able to explain, and generally you do this kind of within your financial statements, within your footnote, you kind of explain the changes to the rate year over year, quarter over quarter. And you need to be able to explain to your auditors, you know, what is happening here? Why is it changing the way it is? Why is my rate always high? Why is my rate always low? Generally, if your rate is, is extremely high, you know, year over year, quarter after quarter, eventually companies are going to want to engage in some kind of tax planning to try to eventually bring that rate down. So especially upper management and shareholders are going to, they're going to push for doing something, right, to bring that rate down. If your rate's consistently low over time, you know, maybe you're in a lot of low tax jurisdictions, maybe you're in a lot of jurisdictions that are, you know, quote unquote, tax havens, right, where there's really beneficial structures to kind of lowering tax and, and bringing your rate down. Eventually, management or investors may say, how are we doing this? Why is our effective tax rate so low? You know, should we be bringing some of our activities back to, to the US maybe or to another country? Why are we offboarding, you know, a lot of our activity as a company to these low tax jurisdictions? You know, will that start to raise some red flags? Potentially. There's nothing illegal necessarily about any of these practices, but it's more just optically, right? So it's, a, it's just another metric that people look at optically to see, you know, what is a company doing? Kind of what's at the heart of what they're doing? Why are they doing it? Is there a business reason for doing it or is it purely a tax reason? So these are all things that kind of weigh into this equation and all things that the investing community kind of looks at when they look at uh, tax provision and the tax footnote. So an effective tax rate reveals a lot of information. What are some of the challenges that tax departments face in terms of determining the income tax provision? First off, you know, your tax provision needs to be accurate, right? So if you're a public company, or like I said, most private companies, you're getting audited. So your provision needs to be materially accurate and needs to reflect the true activity of the company over a period of time. So, so that's number one. So it, need, it needs to be right, essentially. And, and what are the consequences if it's not right? So if it's materially incorrect, you could be facing an instance where an auditor gives you what's called a misstatement. And, and this is really a red flag and really not something that any tax department or any type of management would want. And this is something that could cause, you know, a tax director or a VP of tax to essentially lose their jobs. And what's maybe even worse than a misstatement is a restatement. So a case where something is kind of found in the financial statements after it's issued, where you need to restate your financials due to, you know, some kind of material error. And once again, this is another huge red flag to the investing community, to everyone basically involved that says, you know, something went very wrong. And why is that? So these are kind of really the key consequences of uh, doing your provision incorrectly. So it really comes down to, you know, it has to be accurate. And what about timing? Do you have enough time to collect the information and perform the calculations and know they are accurate? Outside of accuracy, it goes really hand in hand, is timing. So as I mentioned earlier, the accounting group will generally have a couple of weeks to kind of close the books. It could be less sometimes. But then tax is the last step in the process. So they're kind of subject to the tightest time crunch. And, you know, everyone's kind of waiting on them to get it done and get the financials kind of out the door. 
because of this, it really puts a lot of pressure on the tax department to do the provision quickly, but to also do it right. And that becomes very difficult. And a lot of times, you know, folks will, will try to take some shortcuts to try to get it done sooner. And that could definitely negatively impact, you know, what the provision is, what's included, end up, you know, making some kind of mistake. And if that's material, you know, that, as we just mentioned, that could be an issue. So, so this is kind of really the stress of a tax provision is you need to do it right and you need to do it quick. And you kind of need to balance those two objectives and try to find a happy medium where you're getting the right accuracy you need in the timeline you need it. And that's kind of what makes provision so difficult. Right. And those are the goals from a project completion standpoint. But in terms of the calculation itself, what are the goals for the content? Kind of the most obvious goal, which we talked about a little bit, is to provide the information needed for a financial statement. A tax provision is a core component of the financial statement. It's essentially a calculation of the cumulative effect of all tax items that go into a financial statement. So you need it for, for kind of that reason, you know, full stop. But then if, if we take a step back, and we think about, you know, what else could a tax provision be used for? There's a couple of different things. So one is you do a tax provision with your financial statements, which are done shortly after year end. Later on, months later, you do your tax return. Companies, just like people, have to do a tax return. And the deadline for companies is, is actually the same as individuals in the, in the United States. So it's April 15th, but almost every corporation extends their deadline by six months. You could do an extension just like individuals could, and it extends it six months to October 15th. So generally corporations will file their tax returns in October or the summer after their year end, right? So right now we're in 2021 and basically companies will generally be filing their 2020 tax return within the next kind of six months. So over the summer and, you know, by October 15th, companies will file their 2020 return. So what does this really have to do with provision? A company's provision is essentially an estimate and is used for purposes of their tax return. I mentioned the time crunch, kind of the pressure to get the provision done really quickly, the lack of sometimes final information to do it. The provision just needs to be materially correct to the financial statements, but it's not the final calculation. The tax return, on the other hand, is the final calculation and can't just be materially correct. It has to be correct, you know, almost the dollar. So you do your provision shortly after year end, months later, you do your final tax return that includes a lot of the same information as the provision and you get to your tax expense number, you know, what you owe to the government. You take into account what you pay during the year and then you get to, you know, if you still have a payable or if you have receivable and overpayment. But that's kind of the, the other thing a provision is used for. And then kind of the final thing I'll mention that a provision could be used for is it, it really offers a lot of insight into, you know, past performance. It could help plan for the future. So, you know, you, you look at your provision this quarter, this year end, you compare it to previous quarters, previous year ends. You know, you take a step back and you say, okay, what changed year over year, quarter over quarter? How is the business changing? How did we change from a tax perspective? So that's one thing. And then also just looking forward to the future, you're saying, you know, I'm, I'm looking after my provision now. I see these kind of factors driving my effective tax rate. I see these kind of factors, you know, driving my income tax expense, driving my deferred tax asset or liability. You know, looking forward to the future, how is that going to change? You know, is there any planning we could do to bring my effective tax rate down? Is there an acquisition coming that could affect, you know, the performance? How, how is it going to affect the, the performance? 
how should we plan around certain items that are going to happen in the future? Is a law change coming? If we think about the U.S., you know, the Biden administration is now throwing around you know, potential tax reform. How is tax reform going to affect my performance next year? How is it going to affect my provision next year? How is it going to affect me on a go-forward basis? So this is a kind of a tool that you could use for future planning, in addition to you know, obviously using it for your financial statements and also using it as an estimate for your tax return. And speaking of tools, what tools do tax professionals use to tackle the very task of calculating the tax provision? This is kind of one of the craziest areas when we talk about tax provisions. You would think there would be some kind of sophisticated tax software to kind of complete this. And in reality, you know, about 80% of companies in the U.S., publicly and privately traded companies, large and small, are using Microsoft Excel to do their provision. So they're not using really any tax software. They're just using Excel. It's largely a manual process. They're feeding their trial balance in, but then, you know, kind of from there, it's generally a, a very manual process. It's really surprising that this is still the state we're in, but the reality of it is, you know, accountants, CPAs, different folks in the tax department, they feel comfortable in Excel and, you know, they know Excel well, they're kind of in it every day. And, you know, because of that, that's where they end up doing their tax provision, even though there is some software on the market, but, you know, people generally kind of struggle adopting some of it. And a lot of them kind of revert back to using Excel. Yes. Yes, of course. I almost feel as though we heard Steve Jobs roll over in his grave and say, see, spreadsheets been working <laughs> since 1982. <laughs> so how can you meet deadlines, ensure accuracy and get analytics? The question here is, one, how do you do exactly what you're supposed to do with your tax provision, right? How do you deliver on time for it to be accurate? But then with the analytics portion, it's, it's how do you take your provision to the next level, right? So how do you move it beyond just looking at past performance and kind of looking at the future and looking at how do we plan for the future? How does my provision really help me get into the future state that I want? So doing that through Excel is, is difficult. You really need a technology platform that, that's going to help expedite the process, that's going to save you time, that's going to automate things, that, that's really going to help you move this along and really save a lot of the grunt work. And then, you know, thinking about accuracy, Excel is a breeding ground for, for manual error, right? So there, there's just so many issues. It's, it's impossible to track changes in formula. If you have a change in your entity structure, it's very difficult to manipulate your spreadsheet to entertain that. It's very easy to, you know, break a formula or to move something around a column or a row and you end up breaking a formula or, you know, causing an issue with the calculation. So Excel is extremely prone to this. Excel also doesn't really help you roll forward data from quarter to quarter or year to year. It's a very manual process. You need to pull in a lot of data to Excel from external sources, tax rates or exchange rates, you know, things that could be automated by software. But Excel doesn't really allow you to do this. So to, to really, and, and you know, on the analytics side, some companies will create charts and graphs and, and trend analysis or looking at their ETR, kind of analyzing it in Excel, but it's exceedingly rare, right? Because, you know, what we talked about before with the time crunch and just the fact that Excel really isn't that conducive to perform these analytics, you really need a technology that's going to accommodate this and really help you move this process along and help you effectively do your provision and effectively take it to the next level. Of course, there seems to be a lot more room here than just to take advantage of spreadsheets or just open Excel. Why do you think tax professionals are reluctant to embrace more modern technology? 
I think the, the process is twofold. So one, accountants are very used to Excel. They're very comfortable in it. They've been in it for a number of years and they feel you know comfortable with their model and comfortable using it on a current basis. But you know, I think I think the second problem is is when you look at the software solutions out there, they don't really give users an appealing alternative to Excel. A lot of the software solutions out there you know, are effective in generating good reports. And you know, the format of the reports is is effective and is kind of what you need for a provision. But the problem is kind of getting the data in is a huge headache. You need to configure things and kind of jump through hoops to get data in. And then also when you get data out, you can't really tell exactly where the data came from or where it's going. It's just kind of these hard-coded numbers in Excel, and you can't get it really a feel for, for where the data came from or where the data is going. And therefore, what a lot of people do when they use current software on the market is, is they sort of do two runs of the provision. So they'll do it in the software, and then they'll do it in Excel. So it kind of defeats the purpose of using the software because you're putting yourself under even more time pressure because now you need to do your provision twice. And then, you know, the other thing with current software is it really doesn't provide you the analytics that you need. So if you want those analytics around, you know, trend analysis or looking at your rate and kind of planning forward, you really still need to do that offline in Excel. So it's lacking in that aspect as well. And that's why so many people just kind of, you know, continue using Excel and avoid this technology. And just to summarize this episode for everybody taking notes today, a lot of great information about provisions today. First, it's important to the C-suite as well as investors because it reveals so much about the company's performance. Next, it's highly scrutinized. It takes a lot of number crunching to compute, and it's all done by the tax department. Many challenges given that you need information from other departments in the tax department is usually on a tight deadline to calculate the effective tax rate as well as the income tax provision. Calculations themselves for the income tax provision have to be accurate. They have to be able to analyze the information to get the true benefit of a provision. In the past, the job has fallen to Excel, which is manual and thus prone to error. Technology can help ensure accuracy, it offers analytics, and gets the job done quickly. Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know, Wait, wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. Welcome back, everyone. We want to thank Howard for being with us today, and we want to thank everyone at home for joining us as well. 
don't forget to subscribe to this podcast as well as Cross Borders' entire suite of tax podcasts on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. This podcast was hosted by Matthew DeMello, audio engineered by Andrew O'Donnell. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Marilyn Mitchum-Strom is our executive producer. We'll catch everyone next time. 